Good morning, brothers and sisters. It's good to be together today and to worship in the house of the Lord. And uh, for those of you visiting, uh, we just want to make sure that you know, and I believe Marlon mentioned this, that all the decorations and so forth are not ours. Uh, They're uh, the Lutheran Church who owns the building. Uh, We don't believe in having Christmas trees up here uh, alongside the pulpit, but um, there it sits. Just try to block that out of your mind now that I just drew attention to it. (laughs) And you'll also notice manger scenes with uh, little, you know, beautiful baby infants in there. We don't believe that that's Jesus or what he looked like. Um, So just, you know, close your eyes as you walk past that. (laughs) The true Kurt's coming out. (laughs) But I do want to invite you to turn to 1 Corinthians 13. We began a short new series uh, today. It'll take us four to five weeks. I'm anticipating in the book or the chapter of 1 Corinthians 13, commonly called the love chapter. And we're going to be unpacking this. And um, I think this is going to be quite good for the church as a whole and You know, it's interesting that our culture, when it thinks of love, you know, you think of a romantic movie of some sort or these images that are ingrained in our heads from kindergarten on, you know, Valentine's Day and little Cupid and little hearts and and all of these kinds of things, you know, it's a pop culture images that can stay rooted in our head and the images are far from the biblical meaning of what love is. Love is not some cheesy romantic novel or a a show or a movie or any such thing like that, but it springs from the blood of Christ. God's great love for his people is the root of biblical love, amen? And so that's what we want to understand, that's what we want to discover, his glorious redemption that he accomplished when he was nailed to that Roman cross is a beautiful picture of selfless love. 1 Corinthians 13, one of the best known chapters, uh, not only among believers, but even unbelievers. You hear it quoted at weddings, you uh, receive cards, give greeting cards, and it's, it's inside. Uh, you, uh, it's, it's often quilted and, and hanging in our, our houses. Literary, literary professors actually refer to it as a formal expression of love, and we'll examine the text. G. Campbell Morgan, the great expositor, said, from the standpoint of literature, there is one, this is one of the most remarkable passages that ever came from the pen of any man. And it truly is. And those of us who are somewhat familiar with it, it is, it is, it, it's a masterpiece. It really, it really is. And love is, of course, the central thing, uh, that theme that, that's, that's built throughout here. And, and of course, that's talking about agape love, which is God's love. It's, it's a love that is, that is rooted in being other-centered, as it were. It has no self-motives um, uh, at all. And so why should we study this as a church? Well, we just spent 20 weeks in the book of 1 John. One of the primary themes in that book was love and Again, I think our church excels well as far as loving the brethren and loving one another. But to really understand more of this concept of love is a great thing. Reformed Christians are love our doctrine. We love our 1689 London Baptist Confession. We love to talk, 
you know, about election and predestination and all of these things. And, and doctrine is good. Doctrine is important. It is absolutely vital. But oftentimes it comes at the expense of practical deeds and how we interact with one another. In other words, how we're displaying love to one another and applying the gospel through this Christian love. John MacArthur said, right theology is no substitute for love. Religious works are no substitute for love. Furthermore, the church has been divided about what exactly love is and theology and practice and and even spiritual gifts, right? Churches love to fight about how that looks like. And, And so we'll talk some about that as well. Peter writes in his first letter, above all, keep loving one another earnestly. Keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Now, is there anyone here today that feels like you have arrived in this duty of Christian love? You're preaching to the choir because I've already figured this out. Is there anyone here today that would say such a thing? I don't see any hands going up or any heads nodding, just for those of you looking this way. Uh, no, I think we all can, can collectively say that we have not arrived and that we want to grow in this area. And I'm convinced that this will only happen as we dig into God's word, which is a gold mine. I was telling Pastor Steve when we were praying earlier, it's, you know, I've read this chapter, I don't know how many times, over a hundred times for sure, maybe hundreds of times. I've used it in counseling and all of this, but, but as you dig and as you dig into the word of God, it's like a gold mine that you just discover a new nugget that you hadn't seen before or a diamond, you know, and, and, you know, they say diamonds are a girl's best friend. Well, the man of God who's digging into the word of God, it's his best friend too. when he finds these, these jewels and rubies and, and gold. And that's really what is in this chapter and really all of God's word, sola scriptura, which we hold to. The more counseling I do and uh, dealing with couples and, and even in my own marriage, the more convinced I am that men and women, many Christians, don't really understand what this chapter is saying. In fact, just a personal confession for myself. I've been a Christian for 29 years. I've been an ordained pastor for 17 years, and I feel like I still am barely scraping the surface I thought I understood this. I've taught it in a few different levels, a few different times. I've read it hundreds of times. But the Holy Spirit, through the process of sanctification, in the context of interpersonal relationships, marriage, raising children, all of those things, I've come to realize that I understand far less than what I thought I understood of this chapter. So there's, there's my uh, confession and, you know, it's, well, what, is it, what does this type of love look like? What does it mean that love is patient? Love is kind, it, that, that it does not act unbecomingly. It's not easily provoked. What are all those things mean? And, and how is it applied to that sacrificial love that a husband is to show to his wife, the respect that the wife is to show to the husband, and, and even in the nurturing of our children? I'm still learning, and I invite you to learn with me as we go through this over the next four to five weeks. In fact, I would ask you to do this. I would ask you to examine your brain and pretend it's a computer, a hard drive, and reformat it. Start with a blank disk and allow the Word of God to print 
in there what this passage is actually teaching. What That's what we need, is to reformat the hard drive of our brain and our previous understandings of this chapter, and so that we can start, as it were, with a blank disk and allow the Holy Spirit to bring these things to bear. Now, this passage has also been abused uh, in various ways. Um, I read of a chaplain uh, a chaplain of a boys' boarding school, and, and he instructed the, the young boys as he looked out from the pulpit, and he said, just insert everywhere where the word love is, insert the word gentleman, and because he's teaching them how to be gentlemen. And so you can picture it, if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but I'm, but I'm not a, a gentleman, I'm a noisy gong. Uh, being a gentleman is patient, and so forth and so on. And then uh, this particular... Uh, commentator said this, the apostles would have been rather surprised at the concept that Christ was scourged, beaten by soldiers, cursed, crowned with thorns, subjected to unutterable contempt, nailed to a Roman cross, left to bleed to death in order that we might become gentlemen, right? Of course not. Of course not. And so let's go ahead and read. I'm going to read the entire chapter for us, and then we'll pray. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 1. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to move mountains, but I do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all of my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned... But do not have love, it profits me nothing. Love is patient, love is kind, is not jealous, does not, love does not brag and is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly, it does not seek its own, it is not provoked, it does not take into an account a wrong suffered, it does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices in truth, it bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. But if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away with. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away with. When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. But when I became a man, I did away with childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully just as I have also been fully known. But now faith, hope, love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the masterpiece that is before us that flowed from the Apostle Paul's pen. We pray, Lord, that you would humble us under the teaching of your word, that we could be instructed, that we could be further sanctified, that we could grow not only in our understanding, but in our practice of this very text. Lord, we confess that that we fall short and we ask, Lord, that you would be with us in these weeks and even this very morning. Thank you for the work of Christ and that beautiful picture of love and that standing in our place as a substitute. Oh, Lord, we want to keep one eye on Christ constantly. So, Lord, we pray your blessing now in Christ's name. Amen.
So what does it mean to be a Christian? What is the evidence that you're a Christian? You go to the workplace tomorrow. Somebody asks you, you say, I'm a Christian. What does that mean? What, What does that look like? You might say, does it mean, oh, I saw her car in the parking lot. And she does. She's got Christian bumper stickers on it. She must be a Christian. No, it doesn't mean just that. It doesn't mean that you're a Roy Moore supporter or that you you vote Republican lines, or that you're a Trump supporter. Obviously, these things are not the mark of a true Christian at all. Jesus said, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. It's not anything external. It's not how you dress. It's not if you have a manly beard or any such thing. It is how you love others. That is the mark of if you are a true Christian. Now, even though this chapter has been frequently read at weddings and you hear it in different contexts, it's probably hanging on half of your houses somewhere on your wall in your own home. We need to understand that this chapter, even though it's a masterpiece in and of itself, has a context. It does follow chapter 12 of the book of 1 Corinthians, and it precedes chapter 14. And it's very important that we understand this. One commentator, Gordon Fee, says this, The love affair with this love chapter has also allowed it to be read often apart from its context, which does not make it less true, but causes one to miss far too much. And so to understand the actual context here, it comes within this broader context of the use and the misuse of spiritual gifts that God has given to his church. Chapter 13 is is stuck in the middle, as it were, by Paul, so that it would give us the right attitude and the atmosphere of the exercise of these gifts in the context of Christian love. Now, We know the church at Corinth, there's no perfect church, but the church at Corinth was far, far from perfect. It had a lot of problems of which Paul addresses in both of these letters. Actually, there's great evidence that there was a third letter that was lost, but maybe even more than three. But but Paul loved this church and he addressed many of their errors. They They were selfish. They 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 thought sought to promote self. And so even at the end of chapter 12, let's just read that, verse 27. Now you are Christ's body and individual members of it. For God has appointed in the church first apostles and prophets and teachers and miracles and gifts and healings, helps and ministrations, various kinds of tongues. All are not apostles, are they? All are not prophets, are they? All are not teachers, are they? All are not workers of miracles, are they? All do not have gifts of healing, do they? All do not speak with tongues, do they? All do not interpret, do they? But earnestly desire the greater gifts. And I show you a still more excellent way. Now it is unfortunate that verse 31b is tucked in chapter 12. It should be what chapter 13 actually begins with. I show you a more excellent way, which is all of chapter 13. In fact, all of the traits that you see in verses 4 to 7, which really this, the whole chapter kind of has an A, B, A structure. So it's bookended by the beginning and last sections. The central section, the come away that we're to have is that middle section, verses 4 to 7. And every one of these things that the apostle addresses were issues in the church at Corinth. Okay, They were self-seeking, they were boasting, they were arrogant, uh, all of these types of things. And so Paul addresses it in this context. 
One has said, many others have written on love, but Paul has surpassed them all in this marvelous prose poem. It comes like a sweet bell right between the jangling noise of the gifts of chapter 12 and 13. One commentator said, this love is a servant of the will, not a victim of the emotions. And it's, as we get to that middle section, you're going to see that even though they're lift, listed as kind of adjectives in the English, they are all verbs in the Greek. And a verb is a what? Action. It's something that we do, okay? And so we'll see that as we get in there. Another man said the greatest, strongest, deepest thing that Paul ever wrote is this. And as we go through this in these coming weeks, I want us to, to as it were, allow the Word of God to be a mirror, a mirror that reflects the whole church, that we would examine ourselves in the mirror of God's word. Where are we failing and where and how can we excel and excel still far more? That is the ultimate goal for us, is that we would grow in our sanctification and our understanding of who we are in Christ. Now, we're only going to have time to look at the first three verses today. Uh, The Apostle Paul shifts to the first person. He's using himself as an illustration. If I speak with tongues of men. And he uses these uh, conditional clauses. That's if, right? And there's really five, there's really three primary ones. Each verse begins with this, verse one, verse two, and verse three. In verses two and three, there's a second one that adds to it. And each one escalates higher and higher than the previous one. And so the title of the message is the prerequisite of love. The middle section would be the portrait of love, and then verses 8 and following, the perfection of love. So first of all, love is superior to tongues, verse 1. What disharmony there is between clanging cymbals and, and noisy brass pots being banged if there's no love. Without love, your tongues are a clanging cymbal. You say, well, what does this mean here? Well, Paul is showing this more excellent way. He's, he's, when love is, 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 is given this regulating principle, he proceeds to the excellencies of what this love is. And he's pointing to his own apostolic life. He says that he spoke in tongues. He says that later in chapter 14. And so he's using himself as a, a, a litmus test, as it were. Now, tongues is mentioned first because, as we know, the church at Corinth abused that. They abused that particular gift. Um, They put an undue emphasis upon it. Now, the word tongues is glossia. It's where we get language. It can mean speaking or it can mean actual different languages. And and so it could mean both of those. But what Paul is saying here is that if, if I speak even with the greatest eloquence, of men, to where men's chins are dropping down in utter awe over the persuasiveness and the eloquence of one's speech. But I have not love. I'm nothing. I'm a clanging cymbal. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a sounding brass, as it were. I'm a bunch of noise. And then Paul moves from the earthly realm to the heavenly. Notice what he says. If I speak with the tongues of men, and then notice this phrase, and of angels. Now you can picture the Corinth proud, arrogant church in Corinth, and you know, and this tongue, and then finally somebody says, "Oh yeah," and then somebody says, "Oh yeah." Well, I've got the tongues of angels, and then starts ripping like that in this competitive spirit that I can almost vividly imagine is going on. 
that I've got even supernatural tongues. Now, of course, we know Paul in his second letter to Corinth in chapter 12, he addresses the idea that he was caught up to paradise and he heard inexpressible words, words, but it says, of which man is not permitted to speak. So we know that it's not that, right? That, oh, Paul heard these words and so he's saying it and everybody else is picking up on that. No. So ask yourself, are you producing empty noise or true Christian love? Colossians 3.14, beyond all these things, put on love. It's something that, as, as it were, that we put on. And Paul says that if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but I do not have love, I become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. In other words, I can speak eloquently all day. And here I am. And isn't this sound wonderful? But I lack love. I lack love. Kids, I I lack love. So you see that. You get the point, right? I asked around. I couldn't get a symbol. And then I realized I should have asked Oli earlier. But uh, anyway, you get the idea. So if I speak with all this eloquence, if I speak even with with tongues of other languages and flowery prayer languages and even the, the tongues of angels, but I do not have love, it's a bunch of noise. That's all it is. There was a show on in the 1970s, uh, probably about five of you will remember this, The Gong Show. Do you remember that? The big old brass gong, it was a talent kind of show, you know, kind of like who's got talent, but the judges would hit a gong or so. I don't know. Have we watched that? I don't think we've watched it. But. So it would be an act or a dance or a song or something, and finally one of the judges would just say, that's enough, and then hit this big old gong, and they were gonged out. Um, but what does this mean here exactly? Well, there's a couple different ideas floating around, a noisy gong, a clanging cymbal, obviously that it's just empty noise, noise that, that, that has no benefit whatsoever. Now, it could refer, there was certain religious rites to pagan gods that involved the banging of symbols and all of that kind of stuff. It could refer to that. By the way, has anyone ever bought their child a drum set? You suddenly realize what this sound, sound is when you're hearing the practicing every day, bang, 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 you know, the bang, bong, bing, and all of that. But some scholars think that this might refer to something that was inside of ancient theaters. And um, it has to do with these hollow bronze jars that would be placed in certain places in the theater in resonating chambers to assist as amplification so that the sound would go through. So as there was something happening up front, the sound would go out. It would hit these, these empty brass pots that were in resonating chambers. A picture them going down along the side. And the sound could carry much further than it would without that. And so the point would be your words without love produce an empty sound coming from a hollow, lifeless vessel. These hollow vessels that serve no purpose whatsoever but just to carry the sound. But ultimately, there's nothing really within them. They're just empty, lifeless vessels. So, let us consider this. Words of eloquence, all of these types of things. If you have not love, it's just banging noise. It's emptiness. Secondly, verse 2, Paul ratchets it up now. And love is superior to the teaching gifts. And he uses ordinary and extraordinary teaching gifts. 
Verse 2, if I have the gift of prophecy, and I know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. Now, this is amazing. He moves from what's called the static gifts of the tongues and all of that, the being worthless in verse 1, now to all these teaching gifts, and that if that it lacks love, that that's nothing. Now, most of these were mentioned earlier in 12 and will be mentioned again. In fact, in chapter 14, just he actually goes right into prophecy. Look at 14.1. Pursue love, yet desire earnestly spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. For the one who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God. For no one understands, but in his spirit he speaks mysteries. But the one who prophesies speaks to men for the edification and the exhortation and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue edifies himself. The one who prophesies edifies the church. Now, I wish that you all spoke in tongues, but even more that you would prophesy. And greater is the one who prophesies than the one who speaks in tongues, unless he interprets so that the church can receive the edification. Later down in verse 18, he says, I thank God I speak in tongues more than all of you. Verse 19, however, in the church, I desire to speak five words with my mind so that I may instruct others rather than 10,000 words with a tongue. So what Paul is saying here is that even in the context of those of us who preach and teach, if there is not love, the person is nothing. And so what does this look like? Well, it boils down to what our motive is. Is it self-promotion? Is it the praise of men? Or is it truly the edification and maturation of the saints that have been bought by the blood of Christ to see those who are in the congregation grow and and thrive in discipleship and, and thrive in their families and raising a godly seed in the next generation? That's what that looks like having pure motives. And Paul uses this, the word all, you see it repeated here, it's emphatic. It's everywhere. It's, it's not just if I have the gift of some prophecy, and prophecy then could have been a revelatory gift. Prophecy now is more just preaching, expounding what's been revealed. But, but if, if I have all prophecy, all mysteries, all knowledge, all of these things, but lack love, I am nothing. I am nothing. Paul says earlier in chapter 8, verse 1, knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. So just imagine, you know, if if you could preach as Jonathan Edwards and uh, uh, Charles Spurgeon and Martin Luther, and and you had all the theological knowledge of John Calvin and John Owen and, and, and all the faith of all the great missionaries that have ever lived so as to move mountains, but you lack love, it equals what? Zero, zero, nothing. It equals nothing. Even with all of these extraordinary gifts and ordinary teaching gifts, if you lack love, you are nothing. He's not saying that you're a little less useful than the one who does it with love, but you are nothing whatsoever. It's, it's like Paul's, Paul's saying that you're like a paper bag, a brown paper bag tied at the top with nothing but air in it. You're nothing. We have some examples, good and bad, in the uh, Bible that we can look to. 
You remember Balaam, the prophet, the one who prophesied, the one who could be hired, and the one that obviously did not have love for God's people. He's an example of a prophet who spoke with no real love. It took very little to persuade him to go and curse the Israelites. But what about Jeremiah? We read earlier, a prophet, the weeping prophet, the one whose ministry was one of the most difficult ministries of any man whatsoever. Read and study the book of Jeremiah and have a great appreciation for it. My sorrow is beyond healing. My heart is faint within me. Oh, that my head were waters in my eyes, fountains of tears, that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. Jesus Christ himself, as he sees the stubbornness and the hard-heartedness of the Jews and, and especially the religious leaders, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and all of that, he looks over Jerusalem and he what? He weeps because of the great love he has for his people. So he brings all, if I have all prophecy, all mysteries, all knowledge. And then he says, if I have all faith, so as to, to remove mountains. See how he's, he began with just tongues, and then, okay, you're noisy. Then if you had all of these gifts in their fullest proportion, you're nothing. But then he goes on to say, and if you had all faith, so as to remove mountains. I mean, he's using hyperbole, but he, he's elevating it each time as he's going through. Paul is using the same hyperbole that Jesus did. Jesus says in Matthew 21, 21, he answered and said to them, truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, will not only be done as what was done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea. Paul is not condemning these wonderful gifts that are here, but he's, he simply places love above them. It's the regulator. It's the thermostat, as it were, of how those gifts are dispersed to the edification of the church. Matthew Henry said, moving mountains is a great achievement on account of man. But one gram of charity in God's account is much greater. Isn't that amazing? He used the word dram, but I didn't think most people would know what a dram is. One sixteenth of an ounce, but the idea is, is something just the smallest amount of love in God's account is far more value to God. So he says, if you have all of these things, all faith, but you do not have love, and notice he's using it first person. I am nothing. I am a nobody. I've got there's no value whatsoever in me. Those of you who have a pen, write down this number. Everybody got a pen? Write it down. One, zero, 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 zero. That's a big number, isn't it? That's a million, right? That's a huge number. Maybe you've got all of these gifts and all of that, and, and you're thinking, yeah, I'm worth a million dollars or something like that, or I'm a big number. Scratch out the one. How big is it now? It's a lot of zeros. It's still a lot of zeros. I mean, it's a big number as far as a, a, a line of numbers, but the actual value is what? And that's exactly what Paul is saying here. If you have all of these gifts and all knowledge and mysteries, but you do not have love, you are nothing. The third verse, he ratchets it up even more. 
Love is superior to all forms of benevolence. The lack of love actually produces a deficit. Look what he says. And if I give all of my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. There's actually a deficit there. Okay? And that's what he's saying. So the shift here becomes uh, from the gifts that we exercise to the good works that we perform. Okay, the first couple of verses had to do with gifts and speaking and those kinds of things. And this statement is remarkable to the 21st century ears. If Fox News just said the most noble thing to do is to go and sell everything inside of your house and give to the poor because we have all these poverty-ridden countries, how many Americans would go and do that? <laughs> well, you need the right motive, first of all, right? But uh, yeah, it's just totally foreign to our ears. Furthermore, there were many cults and pagan religions that would put an emphasis on this type of thing. The early church, I mean, the early church was pure, right? But but they had that communal lifestyle where they just sold everything and they invested in, in one another and in the spread of the gospel. But these types of things need to be done with the right motive. There can be wrong motives. Self-deprivation and affliction, the monastic lifestyle, and, and all of these things. But if someone, if you did know someone that had done this, you would say, wow, isn't that wonderful? But if it's not wedded to love and the mode of being love, it's no profit whatsoever. Why is it no profit? Oftentimes in these situations, it's done to feed spiritual pride. So if my dear, lovely wife up here in the front row, uh, Jennifer and I decided when we went home, we said, you know, let's just get rid of everything. Let's sell it all. All of her clothes, all of my books, all the first editions and Spurgeon books, and we just sold it all. Every bit of furniture, we emptied the house and we just gave it all to the poor but if it was with, without the motive and the proper motive and, and in the context of love, it would be all for naught. It would be for nothing. Without love, you gain nothing and therefore you really have a deficit. And it's a great deficit. Lady Virtue in Proverbs 31 says she opens her hands to the poor. She reaches out her hands to the needy to have the right motive in doing these things. Now, go back to Mark chapter 10. Brother Marlon read that, our scripture reading, New Testament reading. I want to look at this rich, young ruler. I'm not going to reread the entire text, but we know he he comes and he asks, he kneels before Jesus and he asks, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? That's verse 17. Um, without reading all of that, Jesus quotes the commandments and so forth. And notice what he says in verse 20. And he said to him, teacher, I have kept all of these from my youth up. Wow. Now, there's a couple things going on here. Either he doesn't really understand the heart intent that comes out in the Sermon on the Mount of the law of God and these commandments, or possibly he was very, very righteous externally. I mean, who knows? But, but he says, he has kept these from my youth up. Now this look is a piercing look. Verse 21, looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him and said to him, one thing you lack, go and sell all you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. 
looking at him. The, the idea is to look intently and to scrutinize. Remember, it says in that Jeremiah 17 passage that the heart is deceitful above all else, desperately sick who can understand it. It goes on to say, I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind. And here, Jesus in all of his humanity looks upon this man that claims to have kept God's holy and perfect law. And he looks intently and he feels love for him. He looks intensely into the man's heart and saw covetousness. And he tells him, go and sell everything that you own. What a remarkable thing. And then it says, but at these words, he was saddened. And he went away grieving, for he owned much property. He was very wealthy. He was very rich. He owned much. He tells him, go and sell, and then to follow me, a radical call of discipleship, but he would not. Jesus, by saying this very thing, looking intently once again into his heart, saw the root of covetousness, and he says, here's the test if you truly love God and you love your neighbor as yourself. Because that's in the text as well. I mean, he's, he says very much that you are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. And then he says, back to 1 Corinthians, we see he ratchets it up again. So you see this escalation, right? All of these gifts, and then you sell all of your possessions, and, then, and so what's left if you sell all of your possessions? Just your body. Well, then Paul says, okay, I'm going up one more. And he goes, and I deliver my body to be burned. Now that, if you look in the margin note, <clears throat> um, there's little manuscript evidence to, uh, to verify this, but it... There's a couple different things. It's actually the word to boast. It's only two letters off um, as far as the Greek word goes. And so because this has been carried on from the King James and so forth, it's commonly even in our modern translations. But what does it mean? Well, there could be a various meanings. It could mean, it could be martyrdom. Martyrdom was real. People were burnt at the stake. It could mean giving my body over to be burned. It could mean just giving even myself away. Follow the flow. I'm selling all of my possessions back to Jennifer and I. And then we say, and then let's give of ourselves as slaves. We'll donate ourselves for the cause of the poor. And Paul might be referring to re, re, um, uh, a branding mark of a slave upon his skin. But the connection between giving up one's body and boasting is certainly ambiguous, and it probably has the idea of giving one's body up as a slave. So the first part of the verse speaks of ultimate uh, discipleship, selling everything, giving to the poor, and then the ultimate sacrifice. Well, let's um, just a couple points of conclusion as we've set this introduction up somewhat, uh, the escalating nature of it. Has the Spirit of God convicted you today on some level? I hope that He has. Let us invite that into our lives, into our hearts, so that we might grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ, so that we might become more faithful disciples of Him who bled and died for us and stood in our place. Let us be like Jesus, as it were. Let us seek to have eyes of compassion and tenderness and kindness about us. 
Listen to what one commentator said about this chapter. When this chapter is applied to the local church, that's you, that's me, it becomes dynamite. It uncovers all the weaknesses, gaps, failures, and sins in any Christian community. These words cut us down to size. They humble us because we begin to see what really matters to God. They redirect us as a body of Christ to our true calling. It is probably good for any congregation to assess its life together from time to time in the mirror of this chapter. May the Lord have his way with us. And we know down in verse 8, love never fails. Christian, agape, love never fails. You say, but how do I get more of it into my life? Well, it's not something that you do in and of your own strength. You don't go and check on Amazon and eBay and order extra measures of love. That's not going to do it. It's a reliance upon the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That them, and just studying even the doctrine of the, twi- the Trinity and the, the immense love each person of the Trinity has one for another. And then that love that's been demonstrated to us in the electing power of Almighty the, the, the Father and then the Son coming and dying in our place and the Spirit effectually calling us and breathing life into us, causing us to be born again. It's an understanding of that great love by which we fill ourselves more and more by the Holy Spirit that we then learn more and more of what this love really is and what it looks like. C.T. Studd said, Suspicions subtract, faith adds, but love multiplies. It blesses twice him who gives and him who receives This is the love that Christ demonstrated on the cross for us. And in fact, Jesus is the embodiment of this. Just insert the word Jesus where you see love. Jesus is patient. Jesus is kind. He's not jealous. Jesus does not brag and is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Jesus never fails. Think on that great day of judgment. People that have given their lives in some of these liberal seminaries and all of that to the study of supposedly of God's word and doctrine and all of that but it was just out of mere formality and there was no love. What emptiness. What a grievous day that would be. And if you're outside of Christ today, there's no way you can even begin to understand what this love even looks like. You haven't experienced that beautiful picture of Christ, His love for you, uh, Him dying in our place. You haven't even begun to experience that. So you must come to Jesus, fly to Jesus, run to Jesus, embrace Jesus, confess your sin, repent of your sin. He's a wonderful Savior. He warmly invites you. So come to Him if you're outside of Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You that it is dense. We thank You that it is truth. And we pray, Lord, that in these coming weeks that You would apply this to our our lives, 
to our families, to our church, even our interaction with those outside of the church, Lord. We pray that you would have your way. In Jesus' name, amen.